0: be give me fire, give me that which i desire
1: Hey everybody and welcome to episode 60 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan my name is Brandon on this episode well this episode is a little bit different than others because this is actually an appearance by me on another podcast, The Magician's Podcast, a Uriah Heap fan podcast that is officially endorsed by the band Uriah Heap. I recorded with the host, Mr. Scott Haskins, last week, and it was a blast. We took a look at the Uriah Heap song, I Won't Mind. Now, I am not a big Uriah Heap fan, not for any particular reason. I just have never really taken a deep dive into their catalog, so this was a real treat in getting my feet wet, so to speak, with some Heap. And we talk a whole lot about Metallica as well in our almost two-hour conversation. We talked for a really long time. So we talk a lot about Metallica. We talk a lot about Uriah Heap. It was a blast. I think you guys are going to love this. And I want to give a huge thank you to Scott for letting me use the audio on my feed. So here it is, my appearance, talking about the song I Won't Mind, and a whole lot of Metallica from the Magician's Podcast, the Uriah Heap Fan Podcast, officially endorsed by the band.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Right Heap, The Magician's Podcast. I have a co-host this weekend. We are joined by Brandon from Metallicast. Brandon, how are you
1: doing? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Was that energetic enough? Do I sound like I'm excited that you're here?
1: You sound excited, and I want to believe that you are actually <laughs> excited and not just putting on a show for me.
2: No, not at all. Not at all. I, I, uh, well, anyway, so, uh, you, run... <laughs> so do I sound excited or do, do I sound
1: dead inside?
2: No, I do? you're like three decibels higher than you normally are. Okay. So I, I feel Cause good. I, I could, I could be more excited if you want me to. <laughs> Maybe when the song starts. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, Okay. All right. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Sure. So you run Metallicast, which, (laughs) if I understand and if I'm explaining this right, let me know if I'm not. It's basically a chronological history of Bill Bixby, who played The Incredible Hulk on the television show The Incredible Hulk, while The Incredible Hulk was actually played by Lou Ferrigno. So that doesn't even make sense. Is that a good assessment of your show?
1: I would say that's. Perfect. Um, I'm a really big Lou Ferrigno fan. Hmm. Um, and it just led me to wanting to do a weekly podcast called Metallicast. Um, the, the annoying part is is that it it attracts a lot of Metallica fans, and I say, No, this podcast is not for you. Please go away and find me fans of old school 1970s. Was it 70s or 80s? Not I 70s, think late right? 70s like,
2: going into the early 80s, probably going to the
1: yeah. yeah, I should know this as the host, as of, the host Lou of the show. Yeah, <laughs> <Podcast>. yeah. <laughs> I think that you should have
2: a podcast where you talk with Lou Ferrigno about Metallica songs. I would
1: love to do that. Hey, if Lou Ferrigno, if you are listening and you have no clue who Metallica is, if that's even if that's the case, I will be more than happy to have you on and talk to you
2: yes. about Metallica.
1: I will explain to you who they are. There you go. You know, I I think
2: he would be a fun guy to hang out with for a little bit. I think so. Did you, I mean,
1: have you seen him on King of Queens? I have. He seems like a fun guy. He does. Yeah. yeah. He seems like a fun guy. Yeah, I would like to have him as my neighbor. I also saw him on the apprentice though. And I,
2: I don't think that most people that were contestants on that show should have been there because it's just like not the right
1: environment for them to be in. Uh, are you including Lou in that? Poor yes. Lou. Yeah. 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 That's it's, too bad. It's, it's That's too bad.
2: cutthroat for somebody who's a nice guy, you know, and Lou seems to be like a really nice guy. Yeah, he does seem like a generally nice guy. Uh, Even if he can lift you over his head with basically one finger, uh, I don't want to test that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the truth about your podcast, though, is it has less to do with Bill Bixby and more to do with Metallica. Uh, What made you start the show?
1: I am just a massive Metallica fan. I have been since I was a child. Uh, I remember the first time I heard them, I was like in first grade. It was the inter music video on MTV. And it just, it it, it captured me, captured my young infant brain. <laughs> and it just led me on this journey that I really dove head first into once I was in middle school. Um, and, you know, I, I've said this on my show as only half jokingly, there's a lot of truth behind this is that I can talk about Metallica forever and I will talk to anybody, even if they do not want to listen to me, I will talk to them about Metallica. And it got to the point where I was turning every conversation with my wife into a Metallica conversation to the point, and this is not a joke. She would say something and then look at me and say, okay, now tell me what metallica is doing (laughs) so i said you know what maybe i need an outlet for this so i started this podcast and i said to myself oh this is a unique idea there's no other metallica podcasts out there i started a twitter account realized there's three or four metallica podcasts out there at the time now there's like maybe 10 metallica podcasts out there but um it really just became an outlet for me and i it, it was a lonely outlet at first i was it was just me talking to myself about my favorite bands but over time uh, people strangely started listening and it continued to uh it started to grow and i had other fans on the show and then journalists and authors and bands and uh people who have personal and professional connections to Metallica themselves. So I've had a been lucky to have a lot of cool guests on the show. We've had a lot of uh interesting conversations and it's been uh it's a real uh passion of mine at this point.
2: Yeah, it sounds like it. And you know, I've I've been a fan of theirs since uh I was in the ninth grade, was uh I think right around the time Master of Puppets came out. And I really kind of felt like I joined the game late because they already had, you know, Kill Them All and Ride the Lightning out. And here I am joining yeah. them on a third album when they've already been a mega successful band that magically I'd never heard of. I got really sick and tired of seeing jean jackets with, with their uh, album covers <laughs> painted on them. And I'm like, who are these people? <laughs> yeah. And, but once I checked them out, I was absolutely hooked. Um, I did want to ask you, because you would probably know this when uh, on uh, the first song on Ride the Lightning, Fight Fire with Fire, and then on um, Master of Puppets, Battery, Cliff Burton wrote those classical style intros, didn't he?
1: So I believe that actually it was James Hetfield, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, At least the Battery introduction, because I remember reading an interview where Kirk Hammett um, is telling the story of when they were sitting around because at that point during those albums they were all living in one house together in california and the, uh, i drove by the house and my metallica tour i took out west uh, and uh you would i mean it's just your regular small suburban house now but knowing the history of what was inside it you know it was a a, a great moment for me but they all lived in this little house party there wrote all these classic albums and uh it i remember seeing this reading this interview where kirk hammett was explaining the you know james Heff just sort of started playing it on a an acoustic guitar that was lying around he was like what are you playing and then that turned into uh battery but cliff burden had a huge uh classical influence um and there are many moments and many musical themes that he brought into those first three albums that uh were rooted in his classical influence. And, I, you know, without Cliff Burden, I think that band would have been a lot less melodic and probably would not have ventured down those avenues to have those more classically tinged acoustic intros for songs like that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, I didn't realize that James wrote the intro to Battery. That's cool. Um, I'm pretty sure
1: he did. If yeah. somebody... I'm sure somebody will tell me I'm wrong and maybe (laughs) I I am, but I'm, but, uh, you know, I'm only human, right? Yeah. Well, you
2: can't know everything or you weren't there, but that had to be a little surreal going by that little tiny house and going, this is where metal was born. Really? This, this, that, how is that possible?
1: It was really cool. My wife and I, we flew out to, I'm on the East coast. I'm born and raised in new England and now I live. Right outside New York City. So uh we flew out to San Francisco and then we ended up doing a road trip all the way up to Seattle. We went off the coast. Um, but when I was in San Francisco, I said I need to do a, a mini Metallica tour and just sort of see like the hot spots. So like I went by their the house in El Cerrito, California. Um went by there i drove to san rafael which is a little bit north of san francisco where they have their current headquarters it's just like a warehouse and it's all barbed wire fence to keep people like me out and it's on like this basically abandoned street in like the middle of nowhere and i just stood out there for about 20 minutes staring at the <laughs> building like a creep but it is cool though you can see some spray painting drawings that james hetfield did on the side of the building and stuff. so like you know, I did spots like that. And just in San Francisco in general, like you'd go into um, a random place and they'd have, you know, an autographed picture Metallica. Cause I'm sure somebody was, had performed there or eaten there or drank there or whatever the case may be. Um, so it's just so much history. I made sure that I went to the song battery that you mentioned is named after battery um, uh, a street where the, an old club that they played at oh. i was on so i went down that um went by where the club used to be and stuff it's now you know so many of those places now are gone and are something different but you kind of have to like look at the picture on your phone of like what it was and then match it up with the building like all right well somewhere in that space <laughs> history was made at some point you know right, but yeah for a nerd like me it was a really cool experience and uh fortunately my wife uh let me indulge myself in my nerdom.
2: Oh, sure. And you know, it's fun too. Uh, I remember for Christmas one year I got the uh VHS of Cliffam All that uh what was it, the oh, 1499 yeah. video cassette or whatever. And yeah. it, it's so interesting to see them singing like Seek and Destroy James, especially, he looks so young, you know, he just looks like yeah. a kid and thinking about how how they created something really new and fresh. And they've just made an empire of it. I mean, they're one of the most successful bands in history. And I love that they stuck to their guns. I love that they didn't let people tell them how they needed to write music. They just said, no, this is the way we do it. And and they didn't uh you know, they didn't let themselves be turned by a like a record company executive or somebody saying, No, this is how you be successful sure. in that. They just they just pushed and did it. I really love that.
1: Yeah, I agree. And it, it a funny story is that. You know, the Black Album, like I said, was new when I was in like in first grade. So, because of my age, I came in later in their career. And I remember the first CD I ever owned was Load when I was in sixth grade. So, it was not until after I owned the Black Album and Load that I realized they had other albums before <laughs> that and kind of did my homework and started educating myself. Uh, but I remember after Load, I bought Kill 'Em All. And I brought that home. I brought the CD home and I opened it up and I had the opposite reaction to all the old school metalheads. Like, you know, kill them all. Ride the Lighting Master pumpers. That was their Metallica. And then Load came on like, who are these people with the short hair and the mascara and doing? I had the opposite reaction where I'm like, looking at the back cover of Load, where it's these short haired guys drinking the martinis, smoking the cigars, wearing these like designer suits that open up. The kill them all, whereas the long-haired, pimply-faced teenagers. I'm like, this is the same band, <laughs>
2: <laughs> right? Well, it's like it's like Kiss. You know, you look at them with their makeup yeah. and, and and the the stage ghetto, and then you see them yeah. uh, get up, or and then you see them like what they did after that, and and you're like, wow, it's. Not, it's not the same go, band. Put like, the makeup just, back on, please, <laughs> right, please. Please, we don't need to see that. So <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you and I did something interesting here. We tried to find uh, some connections between our two bands, Uriah Heap and Metallica. And we basically came up with the fact that they, were, they shared a bunch of magazines <laughs> together, uh, you know, with yeah. articles in the same magazine at the yeah. same time, which is really not a real connection. I would imagine they played, they had to have played a couple of festivals together at some point. Uh, but Lars Ulrich had mentioned that he felt Uriah Heep deserved to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And despite any feelings that anyone has about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, how silly it is, it is kind of a cool thing for somebody who is in a very successful band to say, hey, I I like these guys. I think that their yeah. their work should be noted for everyone to see beyond what they've put out. Like they deserve that recognition from an outside source. I thought that was pretty sure. cool.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I I have the same opinion of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where I feel like it means nothing if you are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But if you are in it, I think it's a nice recognition, a nice gesture from the music industry. And, you know, Metallica is in. They got in. They were a first ballot band. They got in. So them being at their stature, I think now they have a responsibility to kind of be a spokesperson for the bands that should have been in a long time ago. You know. Like Motorhead, uh, Iron Maiden, Uriah Heap, you know, like they, they now, I feel like they feel themselves that they have, and also I cannot put words in their mouth, but judging by interviews like this, they are sort of campaigning for all these bands that they are fans of that influenced them to be in. Because let's be honest, all those bands should have been in years ago. Yeah. Uh, but in, and that's the way, it works, you know, and, and I get some of it is just marketing. Like they need a couple big artists each year to really, you know, sell the TV show and to sell the tickets for the live show and whatever the case may be. And then they, you know, always have to have a few smaller artists and whatnot. And and I get not everybody can be in all at once, but still, there's so many bands that should have been in forever ago. That's not in, and that's a whole other debate, but I do think it is a cool recognition even if it means not much. I, I, I feel that way basically about like every award, like, you know, to win 10 Grammy awards, that means nothing if you've never won a Grammy award, but to win 10 Grammy awards, I think that's a cool gesture from the music industry. And I think that's how Metallica views it too. You know, they never set out to be a Grammy award winning rock and roll hall of fame band, mm-hmm. but they appreciate those gestures. And I think most bands would.
2: Well, a Grammy doesn't sound very metal, does it? You know, like you're you're just you how much more distortion can I get in this guitar sound? But then you're like, hey, we're going to go accept our Grammy. Like, it just sounds like such a Hollywood thing. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. the, The thing is that they were really the big forerunners in getting Deep Purple inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I think once they were listened to to get a band who honestly should have been inducted on opening day, Uh, Yes. You know, I think Black Sabbath, Uriah Heap, Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple should have been like opening day. Here are the four bands that we're putting in here because these are the four pillars of rock and roll Um, that obviously didn't happen. But I think because Metallica really pushed so hard to get Deep Purple in there in the first place, now that they've accomplished that, they can go, Okay, now people are paying attention to what we're saying. They're listening to us. Maybe we can help some of these other bands get in there because we feel they all deserve it. And they do. But I think the issue that I have really with the Hall of Fame is two things. One, uh, the people that they let in are not necessarily uh, people that have made huge impacts in the industry. It's kind of like, well, yeah, we know who you are. So you're in. We need some lesser known bands to kind of balance out the big one, like you were saying. And they're not really rock and roll musicians. And then the other thing would be just then just change the name. Just call it the Music Hall of Fame. Yeah. And I would be a lot more open to anybody that's had success to be in there.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think at this point they need a rebranding to like the popular music hall of fame because popular music, it, you know, is everything from jazz to hip hop and everything in between. And that's really what the rock and roll hall of fame is, is, you know, there's, uh, you know, run DMCs in the rock and roll hall of fame. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and they, I know there was some crossover and whatever, but I believe like John Coltrane is, and, uh, miles davis and i'm not saying those musicians should not be it i'm just saying it's a little misleading if you are taking the name literally as rock and roll because rock and roll i think of chuck berry led zeppelin the beatles metallica uh the doors you know uh iron maiden all the bands that we've mentioned already right that's yeah. what i consider rock and roll um and you know nwa i think is a Great rap group, obviously very influential. They're not rock and roll, but they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I agree with you. I think uh, just a rebrand, just rebrand. Right. Yeah. And I I would
2: I love that they picked some great artists, though, to induct and give that credit to. I mean, you know, I'd like to see Dizzy Gillespie and I, I'm looking forward to Chick Korea getting inducted, and I'm sure that will oh, yeah. happen at some point. Uh, but yeah, just, just rebrand it and, and then no one will be able to complain about who you put in there. You'll just say, Hey, these are artists that deserve <laughs> right, recognition yeah. and then we'll be fine, yeah. you know, but I would, I would like to, now the Uriah Heap did get in a European version of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I can't remember what it's called, but they were inducted, I think a couple of years ago. And it was really nice to see that. Cause again, it's that recognition, but to me as an artist, when you look at your record sales or these days, your Spotify plays that you're not really even buying a new car with no matter how many you have, um, that is kind of the recognition, right? Like you see now, Now they just hit, was it uh, 40, 40 million record sales is the, the peak that your are right. just hit 40 yeah. million record sales. Like, do you need somebody to give you an award to tell you that people like your stuff? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But I mean, it is an accolade, but I think it's more like, <sighs> It's more to the fans, I think, because the fans are the ones that need justification to say, hey, I like this band and it's not just me alone in my basement listening to cassette tapes. It's like other people like them too. You know, validation is the word I'm looking for.
1: Yeah, but it's the weird thing with metal fans sometimes too is that like we want that validation, but then so many of them act like, oh, but that's not metal, you know? Right, yeah. (laughs) It's like, oh, oh, you're, you're perform you're performing on the Grammy Awards. That's not no realistically, if you want me to watch the Grammy Awards, have Metallica perform and have other rock bands perform. That's what's gonna make me personally watch, you know. Mm-hmm. But you uh, know, this is just that weird gray area, I guess. But yeah. well, and so- everybody's gonna complain about something, especially with the internet. So oh god, yeah, <laughs> it's it's uh it, it, you know, it's
2: such a double edged sword that thing. Uh, but before we get into the song, since you mentioned performing at awards ceremonies, wasn't there? And, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not that up on the history. But wasn't there a, a performance that Metallica did at some big like MTV awards thing that uh, that they said these guys are never coming back? They uh, I don't know if they performed a song that was controversial, if there was a lot of language in it, or what it was. Wasn't there some some event like I, that?
1: I think the story that you're thinking of is. There was the, I think it was the MTV European Video Music Awards. Okay. And Metallica was scheduled to perform. This was after Load came out. So they were scheduled to perform one or two tracks off Load. I'll say King Nothing. Um, and instead of doing that, they came out and without any of the producers knowing, they did a cover of So What, which starts with So Fucking What. And if you've... If you need to see the lyrics of the song, Google "So What" Metallica. The lyrics are going to pop up. They're very—it's uh, a punk cover from a obscure band, the Anti Nowhere League. The lyrics are very crude, very vulgar, a lot of profanity, a lot of sexual acts being done to various things, animals, and whatnot. That's the kind of song it is. And then they followed it up, I believe, with uh, "Last Caress" by the Misfits. Oh, okay. <laughs> Has, yeah which has you know mm-hmm. the the famous lines of uh you know I'll kill your baby today among other things so it, yeah they that they chose to do two kind of uh controversial punk covers instead of playing their song as far as the fallout goes I'm not sure there really was any because I think Metallica's in this unique position where they're Metallica they're you know if mtv wants people to watch they're one of those bands at least during that era that they would put on now mtv is something completely different i have no clue what it is even anymore but i'm too i'm officially too old to understand it yeah <laughs> right.
2: yeah i i was growing up when mtv first started and that was uh it changed the world it really did and now it's i don't know what it does uh the other thing i just realized though that the, these two bands do have in common is that they have sustained through a lot of tragedy they've sustained through people you know with alcoholism with drugs and all that and uh and both of them have just kept going in one form yeah. or another and have really been able to continue to make good music whether people like this version of the band or that version of the band or this album or that album like i know a lot of people kind of dropped off at load um and reload for metallica um but you know to me it's the bands are going to change they're going to morph they're going to learn from a tour they're going to experiment and if you don't like a version of the band just wait and see what they do in the next album you know but maybe go back and listen to that album in a few years and see if maybe you have a different opinion on it
1: yeah and you know there's listen if a band has been around for i'm going to say more than five years chances are if they're as At least if they're a prolific band, they're going, they've done something that has not been your cup of tea. If they've been around for 10 years, 15, 20, 50 years, they're probably gonna do several projects that are not your cup of tea. Some of them are going to age well, some of them are going to maybe still suck at the end of the day. But you know, you listen, you listen to these bands for a reason because the majority of their output is good to great Mm -hmm. they're still putting on relevant well-crafted performances Mm -hmm. on uh you know it so i think there are those albums that will age gracefully there are other albums that are not there are lineups that are going to always be somebody's favorite you know people with metallica saying the band died after when cliff Burton died it's like Oh, so you're just going to ignore like whatever it was, the 20 years Jason Neustadt has been. And now actually, interesting fact is Rob Trujillo has officially been a member of Metallica longer than either Jason Newsted or Cliff Burton. So wow. he's yeah, been he's been their longest tenured bass player so far. So it's like, you know, it's just a matter of opinion and I respect everybody's opinion. And I, you know, but I think, you also when you have these bands that have been around forever you have new generations of fans with different entry points right yeah and i know when i've had uh you know just having other fans on the podcast with me you know there are fans that are, you know i bought kill them all day one i saw them in san francisco in 1983 and whatever the case may be and then i have a fan on the next episode it's like yeah, my first album was Death Magnetic in 2008. That's my all-time favorite Metallica album. It's just, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with what your entry point is. I know for me personally, like I hold low and load and reload in higher regard than probably a lot of old older school metalheads because those albums were out when I was in middle school and those were some of my first early experiences discovering this band. So for me, I have a different perspective on those albums. You know, so I think that's a lot of it too is just sort of the lineup or the album that you entered the band on.
2: Yeah. And 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 it's the same for heap. I mean, you know, 24 albums, that's a lot of uh entry points for people. And over a 50-year career, uh, you know, for for me it was their fourth album that I heard first. And then, uh, then I went back and did, but I had no idea of the the next album I got. I didn't know where it was in the catalog. I just knew it was an album that band put out. I didn't even know who was on it. I just loved the album. And then of course, over time, then I'm like, oh, okay, well, this was their second album. This was their fifth. And, you know, you start putting it together and then you see that, that, uh, progression of the band, how they changed as musicians, how the different members changed them um but i think everyone that has been in metallica is just a top notch musician i mean there's there's no doubt about the talent or, or creativity of any of those people and i'm just glad that they're still at
1: it through everything that they've been through it's really amazing me too i agree and i i feel that way about you know most bands that are still going after all these years even if it's not a band that you know i necessarily that it's necessarily that relevant to me more like Aerosmith for example is a band that I grew up loving they're not a band in 2021 that's relevant to me personally I could not really care I could kind of care less if they release something new I don't really have any interest in buying a ticket to see them perform but I'm happy that they're still out there doing it and yeah uh, and, and getting it done you know like I respect that I admire that and and I and really at the end of the day, like. I don't want them to go away. I don't have any interest in them going away. Like my whole life they've been in a band. I want them to continue being right. a band, yeah. you know?
2: Yeah, exactly. And and it's not like you're like, you know what, I used to like you and now I kind of don't care. So just stop. <laughs> you yeah. Know? If you're if you're doing things that people enjoy, keep doing them. As long as you're having fun, you know, it shows it shows in the music and it shows on stage, especially. Like when I saw Uriah Heap, both times I've seen them you cannot wipe the smiles off those guys' faces while they're playing from the beginning of the show until they walk off stage. It's just a constant, like, you feel that they just love being there and performing. And that yeah. is a magic that I've I've not seen that much from most bands. Yeah,
1: I. so two things is I never really understood the people who say they went through, like, a phase with a band. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I get being into a band and kind of growing out of it. You know, I get that. But I've never listened to an artist. I fully have like been like, oh, that was a phase. Like I will not that I necessarily revisit certain albums a lot, maybe now, but I can go back to it and be like, at the very least, appreciate it from a nostalgic perspective. You sure. know, like that that album's still a part of my DNA. That band, even if it's a cheesy one-hit wonder, is still part of my DNA. I cannot ignore it or fight it or write it off as Oh, it was just a phase I went to went through in seventh grade, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what jazz is for. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, um another thing to your point, and now I had another great point, And now I've, my brain has gone completely blank. What's the last <laughs> thing that you said? Jog my, re-jog my. Yeah, I was talking about something. <laughs> this is going great. I've, yeah. see, I've already brought the whole thanks, podcast. Thanks for coming on the course. show,
2: Brandon. I used to love doing it. And now, now it's just a shell of what it once was. No, I think we, well, we were just talking about uh, like Aerosmith and, and different phases of the bands and and how people are kind of like, you know, I really like this album and not that album. And I, I think the yeah. thing is, is I get that if you're like if you're somebody who just didn't like the 80s sound then when those bands like Uriah Heap and I'll get to that phase soon enough there are some things that sound very 80s. All of a sudden, the Hammond organ goes away. It's a lot more synthesizer. It really has like an 80s rock and roll feel to it. And if you were to take that and then listen to The Magician's Birthday, it doesn't sound like the same band. That's where they were at the time, you know, for whatever reason or reasons that they were at that point. So if you don't like that album, you just don't listen to it, but you don't crucify the band over it.
1: Sure. And, And, you know, that's why... I'm like, if you, all right, if you're a Saint anger hater, just don't listen to that album. Go listen to Master Puppets. Right. Go listen to any other album, you know? Yeah. If it, it, it just is a personal preference. Well, speaking of personal preferences, you
2: picked today's song. Well, you didn't pick it for the band. Like they released it long before you ever knew who they were. But you picked uh, this song to be on to be the show that you wanted to be on. what's What's magical about this song that you picked today's show?
1: Well, two things is that, um, I'm gonna piss off every heap fan right now listening to this. I'm not a overly familiar with Heap. They're a band that's always been, around that has been i've known the name i've heard you know bits and pieces of but i've never really been able to do like a deep dive just because i just have never taken that plunge so when we were talking about coming on this podcast i was like all right i'm a newbie i'm I'm getting my feet wet they're a band that i want to do a deep dive in and when this song uh came on my radar it just there was a lot of things that reminded me actually of metallica in a certain way
2: interesting well if and if only there was a show that did a deep dive like four songs a week that you could listen to and learn about the band i know it's almost as if
1: maybe that podcast should exist and i should listen to it i wish somebody but would I, do it i'm 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 very i'm way i can't do it i'm preoccupied with my incredible hulk podcast That's so true.
2: yeah well you can't yeah. let bill bixby's uh, legacy die yeah you know that sad song that they always played at the end of every episode there's a title for it i can't think of what it is it's like the the lonely man or something like that that little piano outro that they would play at the end of every episode And i remember as a kid like it just made me so sad for him i just wanted to (laughs) find out what street he was hitchhiking on and go give him a hug and burger or something
1: you know i feel like if that came out now if that show is out now, hashtag sad Hulk would be true. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Sad
2: Affleck. We're going to have sad Hulk.
1: Yeah. <laughs> sad
2: Bruce Banner. You know, I, I think it would be interesting, though, and, and I know that this is an impossible question to really put out there, but I think about if some of these bands that we loved from the 70s and the 80s, if they were to come out in today's music world, like let's say that even without their contribution, the music world ended up where it is now, Um would they be able to cut through all the stuff that you need to cut through as a new artist now, as unique as they are? Yeah. I think it would be a very big challenge. I think a lot of it was, I mean, you had to write great songs. You had to be great performers. You had to be able to play the songs back then, because you don't even have to do that now. But I think a lot of their success had to do with the timing that they came out as well. When they introduced themselves, how what was going on at the time influenced them, but there totally. wasn't as much competition in 1969 as there is in 2021.
1: And you didn't have as many, quote, critics out there because now everybody has a keyboard, has a microphone, has, uh you know, there's a lot more ways to get your opinion and thoughts out there or to just get. Hate out there. We all know that those trolls exist out there. So I, I just think it's a very different beast. And you know, I feel confident in saying that uh, if we're just looking at heavy metal as a genre, heavy metal is not going away. Heavy metal will always have a, a fan base. It will always be popular in some level. Maybe one day it will be, you know, more popular than it is right now, and we'll have a couple bands you know, in the arena circuit or something like that. But there's never going to be another Metallica. There's never going to be another band that reaches that level, that level of branding in the metal genre again. And the reason I feel confident in saying that is because, I mean, one, I think they're a one in a lifetime band talent wise, just like, you know, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, all those bands are kind of in the upper uh, level of, rock history right but i I think a lot of it has to do with what you said which is the timing they came out there's you know there's talent and then there's luck and to have a successful career you need both and i think releasing they they were able to make the right moves at the right time uh, as a band partly strategic and partly by luck Mm -hmm. and you know the black album i think is a perfect example it was the right album the right band, the right producer, the right songs, the right time. It was literally the perfect album for that moment to align with what was going on with MTV and FM radio. And the world was finally ready for something like that. But if that album come out 10 years earlier or had come out 10 years later, it would not have had the same impact for a variety of reasons. Um, it might not have even been a big hit for all we know the, the music industry has just changed so much now in 2021 that the pro is that there's so many voices out there the con is, is that there's so many voices out there
2: right and, <laughs> and you know these days it's so much easier to have the marketing done because you've got so many avenues to reach people very quickly whereas you know back in sure. the 70s we had trade magazines and radio and that was literally it. Um, Yeah, but uh, but imagine if the black album was Metallica's debut album. Right. That would be interesting.
1: Yeah. And it's it's like, where do you go from there? Well, they have. Would they have done the opposite and just gotten gradually heavier and more progressive (laughs) rather than like stripping down their sound a bit, you know, as they did in the 90s?
2: Well, and you had to think, too, if you're if you're a Metallica fan, you kind of like you get used to the formula, right? Like the first song on the album is just a a blistering freight train. And then, you know, the second one's going to be longer, but but more solid. And then the third one or fourth one's going to be more ballad, like in there somewhere. You get used to that, but you have to think. As these guys get older, they're not going to want to be playing 50,000 mile an hour songs all night long. First of all, they're not going to be able to do it because just physically you can't at some point. Yeah. But at at some point, you're going to turn into more of a a songwriter's songwriter versus just somebody who writes hard and heavy. Skills are going to change. Tastes are going to change. Things are going to develop. It's just not going to be like that from beginning to end. I'm surprised at a band like, say, Megadeth, who has been able to sustain that A little bit more. At what point does that start to change?
1: Yeah, and and you know, I think there is a certain level of athleticism actually when it goes into these live shows from these bands because you need that stamina, you need that cardio, and you know, it that's why they work out and that's why they are have a certain level of conditioning. But at some point, age is going to take over that, you know. And I I think there could be a day when you know Metallica is doing. One show a year, or they just retire from touring. Maybe they're just gonna, you know, release a couple albums in their twilight years, you know. But I, I, I do think there's a lot of gas left in the tank for a lot of these bands. And looking at a band like Keep, you know, they're still not necessarily that their songs are, you know, 500 miles per hour, but they're still out there doing the thing. There's so many bands that have been around even longer than that that you know, look at the Rolling Stones that are just still. Going strong, and you still have uh Mick Jagger, you know, jumping all over the place, and um, you know, it, it, the, it's possible. It's possible. Is sure. what I'm saying.
2: Yeah, I could see Metallica maybe just doing festivals as they kind of wind down a little bit. Like maybe, like you said, putting out albums still, not touring as extensively. Maybe just doing the bigger festivals and and you know, the more highlighted uh, events. That would make a lot of sense. You know, we're yeah. still gonna do it, but we're not we're not gonna kill ourselves for this anymore. We we're getting older, we want to enjoy our families. And it's all certainly understandable. You're gonna have people complaining that whatever they do is not enough no matter what. They've certainly sure. earned their their right to do whatever they want at this point. But I think you're right. I, I don't think that anyone's really ever gonna have the success that they found. The only way I could see it is if it's just a completely new category, like basically the way they created their sound and their style of music. I think that would be the only way that something's really going to take, take
1: the world like a storm again, is if it's something just completely new. Yeah, I agree. And obviously I don't know what that is. Otherwise I'd be the one doing it, <laughs> but I I'm guessing, I'm guessing, or at least I'm hoping at some point something will come out and you're like oh i've never heard that before maybe like uh mumble metal (laughs) well that's the thing too i'm like you know i'm i'm the perfect age to appreciate you know what metallica does what nirvana did you know when they came out and kind of did their thing but like the next thing Am I going to be too old to appreciate it? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what is this garbage? You listen to this crap, you know? Am I going to be that guy? (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. And and I kind of wondered, I've wondered a lot because I'm getting close to 50 now. And and I've started to think, have I turned into that like bitter, grumpy old man? Yeah. Am I like, I don't understand today's music because it just doesn't have any heart? Or is, is it really that I'm just bitter and I'm not open to it? Or does it really just have no heart? Because to me, if you can't feel music, if you can't identify with it on that level, it's not something I'm ever going to enjoy. And I think that's one of the things I love about bands like Uriah Heep and and Black Sabbath and Deep Purple is that you feel what they're playing. And I just don't get that from a vocal perspective. It seems like everything now is just so geared up to be successful because of the formulas of music, more so Mm -hmm. than we're just writing this song and this is the way we chose to express it. We feel that this represents the idea of it the best it just feels like okay here's what you do and they just you know they knock out all the bullet points in a song and i, I that's why i don't identify with music
1: as much today yeah i agree with you here's the problem i have is that and, and i realize that every decade has sort of similar production sounds right there's you could tell in a record that was produced in the 80s um and the nineties and the seven, you know, there's, because there's certain techniques that were used equipment that was used and also just sounds that were captured. Right. But to me, the music that's coming out these days, the similarity is a lot of it's the production and you could have a great musician and have such a robotic, overproduced album. Um, and I think the best way to really experience music, I've always thought this, but especially with now is just in a live setting and really see what they're capable of. And I'll, I'll use some pop art as an example here. So like, I've heard Bruno Mars songs on the radio, never thought twice about it. Just sort of not that I thought like the song, I, the songs are catchy. Not that I thought they were even like all that bad. Just it sounds like everything else on the radio. But then you see him perform live and he's got, it's like the second coming of James Brown. You know, he has like a full brass band and he sounds great. He sings phenomenally. There's energy. I'm like, why do they not capture that on album? Or like, I remember when Lady Gaga first came out and whatever her first single was, I was like, this is like overproduced, an overproduced dance track. And my wife was like really into it. She loves a lot of styles of music, but she loves pop music. Even if she knows it's bad, she likes it. So I hear a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And she's like, she went to go see Lady Gaga in concert, went at like a club. Like that's how early it was. And she's like, the highlight of the show is she sat down, she played piano and she sang. And she says, that was the highlight of the show. And I'm like, oh, well that I'm, if she's capable of doing that, I'm impressed. And then I saw it, I saw a video of it. And I was like, so you are a phenomenal musician who can play the piano beautifully. You have this beautiful singing voice. Why don't you do that? And now, I think now she has. You know, She's done so many different stuff now that she's – and there's other artists like them. But I'm just like, why do you not just go in a studio, get a great band behind you, and sing? But there's so much of it watered down by this generic production. And when you listen to rock, like most of it's not even – i would not even classify a lot of it as rock now it's just the same uh kind of generic like how many new songs have come out that you've heard rock wise that you're like i can tell the difference between this band and that band there's so many that copy that like post grunge sound or whatever you want to call this just it it, the production does not help it's just i'm sure they could be a they could be a fun band live, maybe. Maybe they bring tons of energy, but it's just it's it sounds like everything else.
2: Right. And if you don't like the record, you're not wanna, you know, you don't want to fork out 75 or 125 dollars to go see them live. You're not going to get excited about going to that show.
1: Right, absolutely. Yeah.
2: It's and it's interesting too, and I've said this on the show before as I've gone through these older albums, every album has a specific personality to it in the sound, in the in the studio production. Whereas nowadays, for the most part you can't tell what song came from what album if it came out in the last five or six yeah. years, because they get the exact same sound every time or similar enough to where you really can't tell them apart unless you're really focusing on something. And I think we've really lost that. Like, especially going from, you know, like I, I said on the show, going from like uh, you know, Demons and Wizards to Magician's Birthday, they sound completely different. They sound very done at different times. And I love that because if I hear a bonus track, I know what album it came from if it it was mixed with the album sessions. Nowadays, you really can't tell.
1: And that's sort of what I appreciate about, you know, even an album like St. Anger that's very controversial metallic catalog people love to hate that album it has a muddy production down-tuned guitars they capture these imperfect performances where you might hear a wrong note or james Hetfield's voice crack and the snare drums not turned on so you know the famous joke is that it sounds like he's bashing on a trash can and i get all the criticisms that album gets i do but on the flip side it sounds like a unique album that I've never heard before or since. It, I'm not saying it's master puppets, but I'm saying it's different. It's unique, and that's what draws me. when I it, to that album. If I go to listen to it as a Metallica nerd, I'm like, I. It's more of the experience of it, more so than the actual songs, even on that particular record. But it's right. the production, the mix, the mastery the whole, the whole package that kind of draws me in a way to that record and there's other examples of like you know of that being the case whereas but even in a good way like the guitar tones that they that they captured on ride the lightning are unique to that album i had a guest on recently that was like the album sounds how the album cover looks Mm -hmm. and i was like that's a weird thing to say, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah, as soon as you said that, I'm like, yeah, it does.
2: I I, I get that. I think the one that I had, I, I still have a hard time with, and this is just me being an incredibly picky audio engineer. So I've been an audio engineer going on 30 years now, and uh, the one that I have a hard time with is "An Justice for All," because yeah. it's the the bass is up and down. It's muddy. It comes in and then it disappears. The snare drum, uh, and and I heard this album before I started at work as an audio engineer, and even then, as a drummer, I thought the snare drum was very papery, and mm. the kick drums weren't really that punchy. And I, I love the writing on it. I think the writing it's some of their best songs for me, but I have a really hard time with the production on that one. And when I heard the uh, the Jason Newstead. Well, they call it the Jason Newstead mix. He had nothing to do with it, but it was just where they basically aligned the bass guitar in with the songs. Yeah. It sounded ten times better. And I, I still don't understand why they won't go and remaster that album to put out an official version that sounds good.
1: Um, but for whatever reason, I guess they're not. It's funny because not too long ago, just a couple months ago, I did a whole episode with about this topic, about remasters, re-recordings I heard that, yeah. and You know, there was, I, I, I have mixed feelings about it. I, you know, I think when it comes to remasters, I want the original intact um, because that to me is the original artistic vision, good, bad, or ugly. I think it would be nice or cool as a fan to have an alternative version. My fear is I do not want that new version to replace the original version which happens sometimes and i went into a whole thing about megadeth a band that i love they remastered uh all those early records that now sound drastically different than the albums i grew up with and when you are on apple music spotify or buying an album online that's brand new it's you're most likely buying the remaster so that's like it, it, I feel like you're rewriting history in a way and I dislike that. Um, I think to your point if Metallica said, hey because they did a remaster in Justice for all um or they they will be doing one, Box set, you know actually they, it came out already uh, I believe but they um you know they it did come out. they they did not uh they did not change the base and they said you know it was it was a moment in time. Mm-hmm. Which I agree with. On the flip side, I think it would be cool to have the alternative version as part of uh, a big box set like that. At least yeah. as like a collector's edition for Metallica nerds, or um, but you know, I, I think it's a gray area. And ultimately, though i I would prefer the original version, even if I think it can be improved upon. At least if it's an album that I grew up with, that's I hold like dear to my heart.
2: Yeah, in general, I'm not a big fan of remastering because I think they remaster the personality out out of the album. And where you could make that same argument for Injustice for All, that's the one exception I would have for that rule for myself, is that's the one I would like to see redone just because I think a lot of the dynamics of the music, a lot of the writing is lost in that mix. And if it could bring out the full potential of those songs, I would like to hear it. Uh, but in general, I would say, no, just leave it alone. Whatever you did, you did. That's that's the personality of the album. But yeah. that one is just for me as an audio engineer, especially that's that's the one exception I would have would be that album.
1: I get that. But on the flip side, though, it's because that album exists that we get the Black album. Right. Which yeah, I that's think true. is which I think is a be- to this day it is a beautifully produced album. Masterpiece in terms of production, I think. Yeah,
2: I, I would highly agree with that. And ironically, I saw Metallica on the "And Justice for All" tour in Denver when they were touring with Reich, who was doing the Operation oh, awesome. Crime tour. Yeah, and I had not, he- I didn't know who Queensrÿch was. I'd heard of them, but I didn't know any of their songs. And I thought they they were just amazing, equally as good as Metallica on the night that I saw them. But what's funny about it is that I I look at "And Justice for All" as a difficult album for me to listen to because of that mix uh on the on the flip side of it operation mind crime is i think one of the best mixed albums i've ever heard and it's just ironic that those two albums were touring together right yeah you know yeah it's good stuff well let's
1: get into the song i mean i could sit here and talk
2: to you about metallica all day obviously
1: well i have some i have a uh i'm gonna have some heap questions for you okay as this song plays so i want to actually start but it, I, I'm I know there's fans are rolling their eyes and be like, why do you have this guy on this podcast? Um, but like, <laughs> what is where does this song fit in the overall catalog?
2: Okay, so this song is on album seven, which is Wonder World, and it is song number seven on the uh, on the official uh, album order CD. There is a bonus version on the CD, but it's a live version. I don't play live songs on this show. Um, so it's it's still pretty early on. This is the last album with what a lot of people call the classic lineup, which is David Byron on vocals, Ken Hensley on keyboards, Gary Thane on bass, Mick Box on guitars, and Lee Kerslake on drums because uh, Gary, I believe, uh, passed away after this album was made. So obviously then the lineup changes again. Um, but they did a few albums together. This was a fairly solid lineup for the band. It put out Magician's Birthday, Demons and Wizards, some of their you know sweet Freedom, some of their most popular work. So it's, uh, it's a tough album for people because it feels a little bit transitionary coming off of the last couple albums. But at the yeah. same point, it was also the last one with this lineup. So, you know, there tends to be a little bit of nostalgia involved with this as well.
1: All right. Well, I'm ready to dive right in. Let's
2: do it. So here is I Won't Mind. Now, according to the CD, the uh, the song is actually credited to everyone. Uh, David Byron, Gary Thane, Lee Kerslake, and Big Box, I guess. Uh, wait a minute. Well, it's not credited to Ken Hensley. Okay, that's one of, the, one of the few songs that doesn't have a Ken Hensley credit on it, at least according to this CD, and God knows how accurate that is.
0: But <laughs> i just you know
2: i'm at the point where i've seen so much that contradicts so many other things as i've researched dry heap that i just yeah i just don't trust anything anymore you know if i don't well, get it right from the horse's mouth then uh, who knows
1: there's always those things even the uh we were just talking about injustice for all the release date of that is debated every year on social media because there are different sources that have a different street date like metallica.com says something different than uh you know this magazine or that it's just it's all over the place so like i'm not there's a lot of debate on just when the album came out (laughs) yeah yeah, that's just it and if you can't even get that to be a
2: simple thing how can you how can you build on that you know but i remember i don't know the exact date obviously i remember it was my senior year in high school and it was sometime in the fall when i got that album and i'm pretty sure i got it within days of it being released if not on release day uh but i can't really narrow it down any more than that because i remember just sneaking these these headphones under my hat so i could listen to it during (laughs) algebra because i didn't care i was like i don't care metallica has a new album i want to hear it
1: so yeah well i mean and are we doing algebra tonight no so you made the right decision exactly yeah i feel
2: that metallica has served me far greater than finding out the the uh, equivalent of x. For any yeah, reason in my life. Yeah, equals, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, it equals Metallica today, that's for sure.
1: Yes, that is for sure.
2: So let's let's uh, dig into I Won't Mind by Uriah Heap from the
1: album Wonderworld. See, I could have been a DJ. I, I That was flawless. I thought I was listening to the radio for a moment. It brought me back to those old FM rock stations that used to exist. <laughs> I,
2: I took a class on Casey Kasem and... <laughs> Which was brought to us by a letter from... No, just kidding. Okay, let's stop it here for a second. Well, I guess I already did. So there's a there's a lot going on here. This is a really different kind of song for Heap. It's really kind of um, dramatic in a way that, mm-hmm. that we're not used to hearing from them. I love the tones we're getting. It sounds a little bit
1: like a synth bass oh, to yeah. me, doesn't it? Yeah, I, but I love that bass line. It's, yeah. so, it's so simple, but it has such a great groove. And that low note just echoes a deep rich low bass sound.
2: Yeah, I really feel like uh it's something that you feel almost and this is going to be weird to say probably, but almost like in your pelvis where it's just like your center of gravity. Yeah. And uh, and I love that. I love that he's playing something very simple here, which is not very common for Gary. Uh he mm-hmm. he's usually a very adventurous on the bass as his predecessor Paul Newton was, but I
1: really like it. It's almost guttural this this opening. When they go down to that note, dun, 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 dun you f- feel it. You yeah, feel it.
2: Absolutely. And I love the guitar sound. Uh, it sounds like there's a little bit of a delay on it as
1: well, uh, but just just a great tone. Yeah. And what I like about it is that it's it sounds sharp in a way, but it also sleazy. It kind of has like, with uh, well, the first time I heard this, it reminded me almost a little bit of uh, Aerosmith in a way. Okay. Uh where they just sort of have those like sleazy guitars that kind of will snake in almost bluesy but it's not a blues riff if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of feel like this could have been put in a movie where they're going like they're they're panning through like let's say a dive bar and then out of the corner like you see the, you see the stage where the band is playing or whatever and there's like one girl that's yeah. dancing by herself and I just kind of like it, it just has that that feel of something that that could work with that. And there's
1: a detective with a five o'clock shadow drinking that 70s can of Budweiser and his shot of whiskey next to him and his tie is halfway untied. And he's just like, Ugh. I'll punch you in the mush. sea. <laughs> i looking at me, hippie. Well, let's see where it goes from here.
2: I realized I broke I broke a rule on my own show just now, and I kind of feel bad about it. I (laughs) never ever interrupt a Mick Box solo. That's the only, pretty much the only rule I have on the show is that you never. (laughs) So it was really great bringing all these shows to you guys, Brandon. Thanks for coming on. Um, just yeah, pleasure
1: is all mine. Um... Up.
2: I think I think though the term that I want to use for this, especially
1: with the guitar sound, is raw. It's just it just sounds yes. very raw. Yeah. It does sound very raw. And what I what's standing out to me too is that, you know, obviously the bass is a low sounding instrument, but he's really hitting that low sound. And but the guitar is really getting is balancing it with that almost screechy high notes at point. And it it sounds like he's got a slide on to me yeah i think so
2: um but i also think that the way that it's eq'd is it sounds screechy but it's not ear piercing because a lot of times when you get up in that frequency it's just like you just feel like oh my god i've got to stick something in my ear to block that sound out but this is really pleasant it's it's
1: like not even on the edge it just sounds good yeah and he doesn't live there either you know he goes and kind of brings it back down so it just sort of teases it you know it's where it's like if it gets any higher, this could hurt. But right. he, he, yeah, he backs off. And it's sort of like it, it, it. It's just sort of like teasing and then a release. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it's rock and roll Hall of Fame material, as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned. So far, I agree. <laughs> Okay, well, I I was going to cut it earlier, but I didn't cut it off quick enough to prevent the solo starting and I wasn't going to do that again. I'm sorry, Mick. I love that you endorsed the band. I hope that I still have your endorsement after cutting off your your solo there. Uh a lot to unpack here. I love the vocal. Yeah. I think there's a there's a slight uh, echo and delay going on on there that kind of brings out a little mm-hmm. bit of uh depth and dimension. But I love this. It just it feels like uh just a really
1: good bluesy ish rock and roller yeah it you know when you first hear this song it sounds almost a little i don't want to say generic but like you've heard it before Mm -hmm. but when you listen to it closely there's so many subtle things that they're doing um all these slight variations and really smooth transitions that are so interesting to listen to um you know just the I believe it's on the line, just leave me any time, that third line there where they sort of start doing more of a walk almost. Then they kind of break from that bass groove and do a little bit more of a walk. And it's just really well done. And this is what I was talking about when I said, it reminds me a little bit of Metallica. I can picture them doing a Metallica version of this song where they, it starts with that bass groove and it builds up slowly because they have so many songs that do that. And then you just sort of, as they would just, when they get there to do the walk, they would just make it more of a gallop like it did right yeah <laughs> but... yeah double picking and
2: that yeah i, I think yeah, you're yeah, right yeah. And,
1: and i love the very tempos
2: in this too i love that it's just not a solid boom tap boom like it's, yeah. it's got some changes in there which gives it a little bit of character um but I really, I really like the transition
1: feel. at the end too yeah yeah but ba-da-dum, ba-da-dum, mm-hmm. I have to wonder, it,
2: though, what, like what you said at the beginning about it sounding familiar, I kind of feel like anything that starts off that simply or appears to start off that simply, I kind of feel like I automatically think I've heard it before because it's like it, you yeah. can't write something new that's that simple. That has to be something that was done a long time ago by like five different bands.
1: Sure. And and that's sort of the charm of it, right? It, it, because it's instantly familiar to you, you know, right. And there was a song uh I mentioned before it reminded me of something maybe Mattel would do on load and reload too, because there's a song in reload called Devil's Dance and it it's built around this bass groove. But when I heard that song, I, I thought of uh, Another One Bites the Dust because <laughs> it just it's it's kind of instantly familiar in its simplicity. And you know, there's so many it, it's funny because there's a lot of rock songs that are based around a bass groove, but there's only a handful of classic ones, I feel like, do it really well. And this one, I think, does it really well.
2: I would agree. And, it, and I I can tell you as a more experienced heap guy, uh, it's really interesting to hear something built around a bass groove because usually the bass is uh, much more melodic with this band. It's uh, very, very mm-hmm. adventurous. And it's rare that you hear something that's just playing the foundation a little bit more. So it's uh, it's definitely different, but pretty cool. Yeah, I'm digging it. Let's see what happens. You know, I just, I I was thinking, and I meant to to mention this earlier, but there was, I didn't hear any keyboard until just that part that rolled in there. I hadn't noticed a single keyboard or piano or anything prior to that.
1: Yeah, it was really just built around bass, guitar, Mm -hmm. and then the drums enter late, if I recall. Yeah. And then the vocals, they're really layering. Mm -hmm. It's like one member at a time entering and building to this
2: moment. You know, it's interesting, too. I I feel like a lot of their songs um, are, are structured that way, where it's kind of like, you know. Uh, OK, have you seen the movie Poltergeist? The original yes. one. OK, so yeah. in the beginning, they're following the dog around and the dog basically takes you to every character that's a part of the family and introduces them into the movie. Right. So like he right. goes to the teenage daughter, then the little girl and then her brother, whatever the order is, and then the parents. And and you get like a sense of each person being added into the mix. I kind of feel like they do that a lot, too, where they're like, "Okay, here's what these guys are doing. Now, here's the next person. Now, here's the next person. Kind of just introduce everybody into the song, which is really cool because you get to understand what everybody's part in that song is because your focus changes instead of just hearing everybody playing at once and trying to dissect it.
1: Yeah, that's a great. I would I have never made that comparison, and that's a beautiful way of doing it. Perfectly said. This might be the first time Uriah Heep has ever been compared to Poltergeist. <laughs> or anything for that matter, other than the Poltergeist reboot. Like, but uh <laughs> Oh, man, don't get me started on that. <laughs> I have thoughts
2: and feelings.
1: No, I was just going to say, I just would just love the... The melody in this, and the there's so much soul coming through in the vocal, and it's it again, it's there's a lot of simplicity in this song, uh, like it's not an overly uh, original or com- or complicated vocal melody, but it's very well done and just it it, it it's per- it fits perfectly around the instruments
2: yeah i I often say on on these shows that I think David Byron was just a master of telling stories in doing it in a way that made you feel like they're really happening while he's singing them, or he's got such a strong memory as he's recanting a story. it's It's really amazing because a lot of singers can sing a song well. They can nail all the notes, they can put the you know the right inflections and in, and it's believable. But there's a difference between a lot of singers and what some of these guys, especially from this era, could do was really make you feel like you're a part of that story
1: yeah you know yeah it's true and i think that's something that's lost sometimes in not to pull the old man card again but lost in music these days <laughs> where I, I i just feel like there's less songs um that tell a story and you know there's so many songs that fit more into like verse chorus verse chorus which again i understand But I I love a song that really just has tells this grand story. I mean, Tom Waits is one of my all-time favorite uh, songwriters. So is Nick Cave, and both of them are just masters of telling these stories about these characters. And uh, you know, not that this song is necessarily going that far in that direction, but I can see a similarity there. Where you know, as you said, this story is kind of unfolding for us
2: right and you know i'll I'll make probably another first time ever uriah heap comparison would be reba mcintyre and for somebody who as far as i know she only wrote one song out of everything that she's had hits with and and recorded she's only wrote one song and that was after her uh, band died in a plane crash when they were on their way to what whatever part of the tour they were doing and she did not go with them obviously but they all died and so mm-hmm. uh, that was the only song that she wrote was about that. But she knows how to tell a story. She knows how to make you feel like this really happened, and I'm still upset about it and this is how it's affecting me. And you just you just get drawn in by her delivery so much that you don't think about the fact that this isn't even a story that she wrote. You just feel like right. she lived it. And I very yeah. much feel the same way with David Byron as a vocalist. that you just feel like everything he sings, he was there. Like this is his life. He's singing about not s- some lyrics he wrote down on a piece of paper.
1: And that's really what makes great vocalists, great vocalists, because you know, it, it's, it's one thing to have this technically proficient voice and that's admirable, but it's the performers that uh, the performers that have one that pull it off well is because they make it believable with emotion and, uh, in 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 their delivery and if you look at somebody like you know Johnny Cash is one of my all-time favorite vocalists it's nothing to marvel at he's not a technically proficient singer to the same level of like an opera singer or a, a Ronnie James Dio but it's the motion it's the delivery it's the power of that voice he can sell it you know so selling selling the lyrics selling the melody is such a huge part of being vocalist, i think sometimes is underrated and i think it's the same thing with you know james hatfield is he's not the most skilled vocalist but he has that signature bark that just delivers um his message
2: right and and he's somebody that is a very solid singer at what he does he doesn't have a huge range but in the range he sings and he is rock solid as a singer
1: yeah. And I think he has an un- there's an underrated soulfulness in his voice, too, that um, a lot of people who maybe do not listen to the band might not recognize or even they do might not fully appreciate. Well, listen
2: to uh, them their cover of Turn the Page or When a Blind Man Cries. And I think you really get to see a little more of the dynamics that he actually has that just in general don't suit their
1: songwriting. Absolutely agree. And that's another reason, too, why I feel like, again, I could picture Metallica covering this song because I I know that Hetfield could deliver this vocally beautifully. Yeah,
2: I agree with that. But who is the singer that you were just talking about? Um, Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash. Uh, Equally, I would like to see Johnny Cash do some Ronnie James Dio songs. (laughs)
1: <laughs> hey, he, he if he can pull off Nine-ish Nails and Soundgarden, you never know. <laughs> That's true. If William Shatner could do a rock
2: album, then I think uh, I think he could do a couple of Dio covers, maybe a rainbow in the dark, something not too difficult, you know?
1: Just a rainbow in the dark.
2: Oh my God, he'd start the song like that too.
1: Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. Man in Black, just a rainbow in the dark. And, and he'd have That's the, the, the girls job, yeah.
2: and he'd, he'd still have the girls throwing their tops at him. I guarantee it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and this is like 80 year old cash too. Yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man.
2: And I love mix playing on that. It just, you just feel it. Yeah. There's something, and, and it's interesting again to compare it to blues, but there's just something about a blues guitarist, the way they solo, you feel it in your
1: bones. It has that wail, right? If yeah. You think of like a blues vocalist has like sort of that emotional sad wail and a great blues guitarist can mimic that in their own way. mm mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, very much so. It it's it's that same feeling that you get from the lyricist. And and you feel I, I remember, I can't remember which guitar player it was. It might have been Steve Morse. I did a masterclass with him uh last year, and he was talking I think it was it was him. He was talking about how the guitar solo has to be at least on par with the vocal, if not better. But right. you have to be careful, you don't want to overshadow the singer coming in for that last verse. But I, I feel that because if you if your singer is creating a great level of emotion and then you come in with a half ass solo, you're going to ruin the song. And then it's going to be totally. hard for the uh, for the listener to come back and get back into that emotion when the singer starts the last verse. So it makes yeah. sense. I never really put it into terms before.
1: Yeah, I can I say too that going back to the bass for a moment, mm-hmm. this is really um uh, he's really putting on his own master class right now about the role of a basis mm-hmm. when you listen to this there's so much uh variation what he's doing from the initial bass groove that really lays the foundation of all the instruments that are built on top of it to you know the more melodic playing um, that comes in with the full bands kicked into mm-hmm. the More driving, simplistic bass line that's more traditional drum and bass rhythm section. There's he's really nailing everything a bassist should do in a band in this one song, yeah. Um, and he's doing it really well at the right
2: moments, exactly. He's a very tasteful, and even when he and there was a part where he was getting a little more adventurous and, and just getting away from the root note playing, uh, which is more like the sound that I that I'm used to from him. But he, he does it to where he he ventures out, but he I feel like he still restrains himself enough to know what's too much for the song,
1: like where yeah.
2: I can go. And then, you know what? I need to dial it back because if I go any further,
1: it's going to be too much. Like he just knows where that line is and doesn't cross it. Well, it, it, it works in this song too because it's, providing almost a counter melody to the vocals in a really beautiful way, especially when the guitar in this song is not really very melodic. And it's uh, in terms of playing uh, a traditional melody, because it's uh, it's really a continuous solo throughout. I mean, it's a melodic solo. Don't get me wrong, but it's, but you know, it's not, it's role in this particular song is not to, play the melodic line or to follow the vocal it's to interject those solo parts throughout And so the bass is sort of picking up the slack in certain sections and kind of providing uh a counter to what the vocalist is doing and adding that underlying melody that is uh really fills up the sound so it 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 does not sound like empty or hollow It, it it makes it sound really full and rich
2: yeah, and it's interesting because since there's no real organ in this song, I mean, we're used to hearing a very distorted and heavy Hammond B3, uh, really thickening things up. I don't feel like this song is lacking for sound at all. I feel like it's pretty rich and full. I am hearing a second guitar track here and there in my left ear, whereas the, mm-hmm. the main guitar is in my right, um, unless my headphones are backwards. But uh, I, I think it, it sounds really <laughs> good. I, I think adding anything more might be a
1: little bit too much. I agree, and I think this is a sign of a great rock band. Like, think of a band like Black Sabbath, who you know had, had such a big sound with one guitar, or a more contemporary band, Pantera. Right, one guitar, and these I know, I know there were overdubs and studio stuff, but still, when you see them live, there's not a second guitarist on that stage, and they have this big, huge sound. I think that's when you can have um, uh, minimal musicians on stage and still sound like you're this big band. I think there's a lot to say about that. And, you know, I trust me, I, I love the spectacle of Iron Maiden with three guitars on stage at the same time. It, it, but there's something when you just have guitar, one guitar, one bass, one drummer, one singer, and you can still make that huge sound that's really impressive.
2: I think even to take that a step further, I would look at a band like The Police, who was just a three-piece,
1: yeah. and man, even live, they they really sounded like a full band. Yeah, and I was thinking too as I was talking, uh, White Stripes, with uh, you know, to even let's minus one, <laughs> <laughs> right. but and I and I will say, uh, you know, I I'm I like Jack White. I'm not the biggest Jack White fan, but I like him, and he I we, my wife and I saw him live. And I think his guitar sound at this particular show, at least, was the loudest guitar sound I've ever heard live. And I've seen Metallica numerous times. I've seen death metal bands. This was the loudest guitar I've ever heard. Nice. And, of course, it got
2: really crazy in the 80s because in the 80s, you literally had two people on stage. But it sounded like a full band because everything was sequenced
1: in in the pop world.
2: I was so let down. I've been to the Lost 80s live show because they do the final show of the tour here in Las Vegas every year. And uh, obviously not this past year, but uh, it's it's just so weird to see like one full band get up there and play. And then the next one is literally a singer who does nothing but sing and a keyboard player <laughs> who is making all of yeah. the, the the sounds for the rest of the band. It's just yeah. such a weird dynamic to watch nothing and hear a full band. Yeah, it, it's still I, I mean, every time I see it, it just throws me off. Like, I'm like, I don't why wouldn't you just get musicians for the tour and make it look impressive? <laughs> you know, it's hard to get into that.
1: It's it's just a I weird know. Thing. And and that's the thing, too. You know, going back to this song is that that makes it even more impressive or a band like Sabbath was like that technology was not developed at that point. Like they had to they had to pull it off live in the studio. They had to pull off live on stage and they had to recreate that big sound yeah
2: and and bands that knew what they were doing like these guys did it in
1: spades for sure definitely
2: definitely uh Yeah, I cut it off before he really started, so that that counts. <laughs> I really like what I'm hearing here. I am now hearing a little bit of keyboard, a little bit of Hammond organ blended in there, but it's just mixed so tight that yeah. it doesn't it doesn't stand out like I'm like I'm used to hearing. But it's it's slightly to the left in my headphones. Mm-hmm. Um, some great playing from Lee Kerslake, who we haven't talked about. Um, just you know, solid drumming, keeping the foundation, but keeping it mm-hmm. interesting, changing it up in different parts. Yeah, I just love the feel of the song.
1: Yeah, it's it really like I said before, it's simplistic on the surface, but very subtle things are happening uh, on drums, on bass, on guitar, on each part. That's really impressive in its own right because of the variations, because of the transitions. Um, it's it's a really smooth arrangement. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and, and I, I don't want to bash Metallica. So I, I don't mean to do it, even though I'm kind of gonna. Um, <laughs> one thing I really like about Uriah Heap is I've never felt like anything that they've done that I'm familiar with has been cut and paste. Now, maybe when I get into the 80s uh, era, I'll feel that way a little bit more. But it's like every chorus is done a little bit differently. Every verse is done a little bit differently. And if I think of a song like um, "Oh uh, uh, Disposable Heroes, I kind of feel like with Metallica, like this is the way the verse goes. This is the way the chorus goes. It's very sure. exacting, which is fine. Yeah. I mean, that's their style. I don't. I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I, I do like having a little bit more of a variety. More of, I like this verse and the way it was done versus here's how all the verses were done.
1: No, I think that's fair, and it, because you know, Metallica is not a band that is really going to jam, right? Even, you know, if they do a jam at a concert, it's like a, a, a two-minute thing because they're filling time while somebody's doing something and it's really going to fall apart quickly. They're not a band that's really known for jamming. But like this song, you can tell that all these musicians can, are probably great in jam sessions, great improvisers. There's a looseness there that uh, if that's not the case that's at least coming through to me as a listener because they're they're very tight but there's a looseness that um allows for again I'll use that word variety um and little subtle changes here and there so I agree with you not every part is exactly the same there's enough similarities to connect each section so there's a a coherent arrangement but it's not um it, it, it does feel like there's subtle differences in the performance. Well, I'll give you a quick,
2: um, kind of reference. The, uh, the album, you may not know it It's a Chick Corea album, but it was done by the electric band. So you're talking, you know, Dave Weckl, John Patatucci, Frank Gambale, like some of the best jazz musicians in the world. They get together, sure. they do this album called inside out. And when you look at the sheet music, it's basically just black ink. I mean, it's just such a sea of notes. You can't even read it. It's not discernible. Yeah. And I met the drummer, Dave Weckl. He came out to do uh, an autograph signing when I was working for a, a chain of music stores. And we opened up a store in Colorado. And he was playing in Boulder the next night. So he flew out a night early to do an autograph signing. And so I, as, as I walked him out to the car at the end of the night, I said, you know, uh, I haven't really gotten to spend any time with you, but I do have one question for you, if you don't mind. And he said, Sure. And I said, I heard that the album Inside Out was written and recorded in two weeks. And he just smiled and he shook his head and he goes, no, it was less. <laughs> <laughs> the the album is just insane. But I think part of yeah. what it is, is when you have musicians that are at the top of their game, like I feel like Uriah Heep was at this point, even up to this point, I think there's a certain level of trust where they just say, you know the parameters of the song. You know what key we're in we're all going to listen to each other. We're all going to be aware of where each other is at, but also feel free to be adventurous within those parameters because we trust each other. We're comfortable enough. We've Mm -hmm. done a few albums together now. And I think they have that room with each other to be able to do that. I don't think a lot of bands necessarily have that with each other.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great point. And you can tell the bands that know each other, right? You know, You know where when you play with the musician for long enough, you tend to know what their strengths are, Mm -hmm. what their limitations are, and you tend to know sort of where things are going, even when you have no clue where it's going, because there's little subtle, they might give you a look or might give you a nod or might, you know, have a signature lick that they play that, you know, means they're going to lead to hear, or whatever the case may be, you just get to know the nuances of that player just from playing with them. And, and, and for a band like Keep, that's, you know, think of all the shows, all the touring, all the jamming, all the playing. Like there's so many years that go into that. And that's why I think, you know, you see most bands, not every band, but most bands do their best work two, three, four albums in because they need that time to develop and start clicking as songwriters and as performers and you just get to know each other a little bit better so you build up and eventually you plateau and reach sort of that artistic peak
2: yeah i would i would definitely agree with that and i think that too is also learning to deal with the pressures on top of that like the record company saying well you've got to get an album out in a month and you have to do this and you have to do that and oh you yeah you're going to be on tour four nights a week while you're doing that and you know all the pressures, all right. especially back in the '70s, that bands were just pushed to the limit by record companies. Um, there's so much pressure that people don't think about when they when they judge an album or a band. It's a lot to hold up to.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I I often it,
2: wonder too, and maybe you can shed some light on this with Metallica. You know, I think about how long they were putting the songs together for, say, Kill 'Em All. You know, that wasn't just hey, we wrote an album, we found a record company, we released it. That was a long time of playing together. With a different guitarist, but those songs were very established for those guys. Then they get a record deal. Okay, we want another album. uh Well, it took us like four years to put those songs together. So, we get in four years. Yeah. So what do we? What do we get? The pressure changes completely, and some bands will be able to work with that, and some bands won't. And a lot of bands don't have a successful album after that amazing debut because they can't hold up to that pressure.
1: Sure. Yeah. What was it like for Metallica? Do you know? Well, I think that, first of all, I think there's very few bands out there that make such a progressive leap from their first to second album as Metallica did. Because when you listen to Kill em All, you hear the innocence, you hear the youthful energy, whether it's in the lyrics or the performances or the arrangements. There's so many songs on there that are kind of like a blueprint of what would come later mm-hmm. and then when you hear ride the lightning is such a gigantic step forward and the albums were released 1983 then 1984 so on paper it looks like wow they made a gigantic leap in a year but that's not the case because you know as you said they had a couple years right to write those songs for kill em all and but at the at the time they're writing kill em all and have those songs up but the writing process already started for ride the lightning. Sure. And so, you know, there's a, a, a larger window of growth and progression behind the scenes that it looks like it's on paper. But I mean, you mentioned before the, you know, the classical intro to fight fire with fire. I mean, to compare, if you listen to kill them all from start to finish, which is basically just heavy, fast, energetic record, and that's the first thing you hear. And then you get two, you know, three songs in for Whom the Bell Tolls, a more mid tempo song, and then a ballad in Fade to Black, or as much of a ballad as Metallica did at that point. And then it ends with like an eight minute instrumental. It's like, this is like almost an entirely different band in a way.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, you're right. Because Hit the Lights, which is the first song on Kill em All, is, I'm telling you, as if you don't know. <laughs> but uh but it's it's like it sounds like they're opening a concert, right? It's just got that uh, you yeah. know, we just got on stage, the audience is warmed up, we're ready to go, and we're we're just doing our warm-up, versus uh, you know, fight fire with fire, which is really more of a we really put a lot of thought into this music. We really, you know, we felt it, but we it's it's intellectual as well, which you and don't get pop- as much on on kill 'em all. Kill 'em all is just like raw energy and power and excitement. Sure. Whereas I think uh, Ride the Lightning was a much more refined uh, set of songs.
1: Absolutely, and part of that too is the recording process because sure. you know you're all those songs that kill Kill 'Em All, they literally, you know, were playing them in clubs, and then they got a little bit of money to make an album really quick. I think the whole album was recorded in you know I'll say I'll make up a number, but you know a month, probably in a couple of weeks it was recorded, not written but recorded in a couple weeks and they only have a limited budget i know that for a fact through interviews that you know the band wasn't even entirely happy with how the album sounded but there was no money to go back and change anything and it is it was what it was but with ride the lightning they were a little bit more established had a. Uh, Uh, a little bit more money they could take their time they also went to europe to record that on they went to uh denmark where lars Ulrich's from and things were a little bit cheaper there than they were in california so they could afford to do more with the money that they had so they were able to take more time to get the drum sounds to get the guitar tones that they wanted and that's when they really started focusing on like all right what does it take to be in a studio and to be a band in the studio? That was really the beginning of that. And then you can see the progression on master puppets and so on and so forth, especially through the black album. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think a part of that too, is just the recording process of it and having, you know, the reality of, uh, you know, limits with money and in time sure. and also too, just having more knowledge of like all right we did it once we know what it's like to be in a recording studio now now we have this you know a producer who can work with us and teach us things and yada yada yada
2: well that's that's what i was going to say was too is that they probably didn't really have a producer on the first album to tell them to edit them and they probably wouldn't have listened anyway i mean they're young kids hey we got money yeah. they want us we're yeah. going to do our songs our way but I also heard that part of the reason that they chose that particular studio for Ride the Lightning is because that's where Rainbow recorded Down to Earth and they loved that sound so much. They wanted to capture that with their band. Like they wanted to capture that atmosphere
1: with their music. Yeah, I remember hearing that actually. And it makes total sense because they are massive Rainbow fans. I mean, mm-hmm. Lars Ulrich is... Deep Purple's his all-time favorite band and there's that connection there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know just... There's so many connections among all those bands between Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Rainbow, just all those crossovers that all those bands seem to have back in the day that all sort of bled into all these great acts that, you know, influenced them and so many others. Exactly.
2: Let's get back to the song because I want to hear what happens next. Yeah, let's do it. How do you decide that we're just going to let you solo for like a good two minutes and then just, just keep going and we're going to fade it out? I mean, that's a long time to sustain an interesting bit of guitar work, but I think he did yeah. it.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I was going to say, too, I, I I missed the classic fade out. More 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 songs need the classic fade out. Yeah. It seems like everybody
2: feels like they have to end it because if they want to do it live, you have to have an ending anyway. So why rewrite it? Just do it that way in the first place, you know? (laughs) Uh, But I love that guitar work. I mean, for one, the sound of the guitar. And again, I'll I'll say for all the the range he's playing and as screechy as some of those notes are, it does not sound bad at all. There was no point where I'm like, there's a frequency that's coming through. I don't
1: like, it just
2: sounded great.
1: Yeah, I agree. There's, there's a you know, I I feel like it was a rep- repetitive solo without him repeating anything in terms of particular phrases. It, he, it, there's that motif that just sort of inserted notes that he would go back to, but it was it really felt like he was I, I'd be surprised to learn if that so- solo was not improvised. Mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty confident that he was just going off the cuff there.
2: Yeah, I I would think so, too. That's for one, that would be far too much to try and memorize because usually like they write this stuff 20 minutes before they record it. So uh, yeah, I, I would imagine that would be way too much to remember. But I do feel it's very natural. And I know some of his solos yeah. are planned and some are not. I would I would venture to agree with you. This was probably not. But that's just so much energy to keep mm-hmm. up, especially when you don't have a beat that's driving behind you. You know, it's it's really yeah, contrasting yeah. because he's playing aggressively with a very, very simple beat behind him at a slower tempo. But I like the changes in the drums here and there. I like little bass licks that were thrown in there to keep it together. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's so, it's such a supportive band when it's somebody's time to shine.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I, I master work by the rhythm section with bass and drums, just really holding it down. And, you know, to go back to your point, uh, you know, the blues is, all about emotion so to to like pre to write out a blue solo just seems wrong in a way because yeah. you have to you have to it it can't sound rehearsed or practiced or polished it has to capture raw energy that captures that emotion is it just it you have to if you're going to write out a a solo and capture that then you really are a master performer um and I'm not saying that he it does not take a master performer to pull it off otherwise because it does, but but you know there's it's so much easier to just not easier but it's 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 so much more effective to improvise and just capture that pure moment than try to. Mimic it is what I'm trying to say.
2: Right. I kind of feel like if you're if you're planning the blues, then you're a liar because the blues are all about <laughs> right. this is yeah. the moment yeah, I'm yeah, in. Yeah. And in this moment, I'm going to share my feelings with you. And by the way, they're really gut-wrenching.
1: Yeah. And by the way, I wrote this. Five years ago, and I'm here to bring it to you tonight, <laughs> but, note for note. And uh... <laughs> but
2: the it, and that's what I like about it is because you know there are guitar players that will memorize their solos, and this is the way people know it, so this is the way I'm going to sure. perform it. But you can't do that with blues. I I, I mean, you could if people yeah. if you don't record it and people don't get a chance to hear it. But I really feel like most blues players and a lot of the best guitar players are like, here's just where I'm at right now while I've got you guys in front of me while I'm standing here on this corner of the stage. Here's where I am and that's what you're going to get. This is what the song is inspiring Absolutely. me to feel. And that's the best stuff to me. I, I don't, you know, I don't mind studio solos being planned if they're technical, if they make sense to plan at least sections of them. But, uh, but a solo should just be, here's what I'm feeling right now while i'm recording
1: right yeah yeah absolutely i agree it's it's a
2: good song though i could totally see why you pick it it's it's raw it's uh it's it's definitely got a a foundation to it that's that's just rooted in a simple strength that they just layer on because they're really good at layering
1: so i have a question for you yeah lyrically is this song sort of left fields for Uriah Heap, or is this kind pretty much in line with a lot of the stuff that they were lyrically writing during this time period?
2: That's a tough question. Um, I suppose the answer will be very subjective for me. They're kind of all over the place. Lyrically, they'll sing about love, yeah. then they'll sing about war. Uh, those are two topics that they go back and forth on pretty, pretty often, but it, they're very, um, they're very eclectic lyrically. It's kind of like I saw something and it made me think of this, so I wrote a song about it, as opposed to this is an album that mainly focuses on love or this is an album that mainly focuses on war. The only two albums that I could say really had a specific motif for the majority of them would be Demons and Wizards and The Magician's Birthday, although you could really argue that The Magician's Birthday was all over the place lyrically, depending on what they meant by the subject matter or what your interpretation of the subject matter is. I don't think it's odd for them to write lyrics like this in any way, but mm-hmm. it's not like I could say, yeah, they had three or four other songs that were like this. You know, it's it's yeah. really, yeah, they're yeah, yeah. so unique as, as lyrically as they are musically because they didn't have any musical songs like this at all.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, from what I've heard from them, because again, I'm a newbie here. Sure. I'm ready to take my deep dive. It, it seems like, musically it was definitely different so i was curious about the lyrics because you know when i hear some of this stuff i think of them more as almost like a fantasy bass band in a way or um and i know they also have a lot of songs about love and whatnot as most bands tend to do right but uh, so I, i was curious how much was written that's sort of more bluesy and kind of more you know down and out emotion in a way
2: yeah. And they, they do have a, a few blue songs that just not one that is this um, guttural, you know, not one that, that um, is this slow and just this so much in the pocket, but they do have a lot of blue stuff. They also really do a lot of shuffles, probably more shuffles than yeah. any other band i I know well, but it's always good to have a, an album with a shuffle or two on it.
1: Well, I really enjoy that song and uh, I like a. Like I said, I could really picture on a uh, grodging Two when it comes out someday Metallica pulling off uh, this song or another heap song. I think, you know, a song like this, especially I think is right up their alley in terms of uh, groove. I think th- I could picture them beefing it up and Metallicaizing it a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I it, I don't think it's too far removed from some songs that we've heard from them.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. I would love to hear Metallica do a version of this. I'd love to hear what Kirk would play over yeah. it. You know, since it's basically mostly solo through the whole thing with a with a backing rhythm guitar. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it would be quite an adventure. I'd love to hear what they would do with it. Equally though, I would love to hear every band I've ever enjoyed do a, a version of Call of Cthulhu because that's one of my favorite Metallica <laughs> songs. And uh, yeah. I'm not a big live music guy unless i'm at the show like i don't really like to listen to a lot of live records but that being one of my favorite songs uh i have seen quite a few different versions of metallica performing it live and man Lars just goes off every time it's like he forgets that there's people watching him and that there's even a band there it's just like he's just gonna play whatever he wants and he he really puts a thousand percent into it
1: I agree with you, actually, where I'm not a big fan of live albums, unless if it's... In order for me to really respond to live, I have to either have been there in person or it has to be unique, like an unplugged performance that's really well done yeah. or, or like the s m concerts I really liked for Metallica. And I mentioned that because the Call of Cthulhu s version with the symphony orchestra, I think is the... Uh, this might be a hot take for somebody. I think that is the premiere version of the song Mm -hmm. where it sounds like it's taken straight from uh, a film soundtrack yeah
2: i i yeah that's probably true i would like to now here i'm going to contradict myself but they're on that um video cassette that i had that version of for whom the bell tolls when they were outside at that big uh whatever that festival was that they were playing that's one show i would like to see the entire show of because I yeah. think they were really comfortable as a band at that point. They they were so fearless and adventurous and they just, they just went for it a thousand percent. And I think that would be a show to see because I love the version of For Whom the Bell Tolls that they did. And I think yeah. there might have been another song from that show on the video. I can't remember now. Uh, or maybe that was, yeah, that was the Cliff of All one, maybe. I don't know. It was a long time ago, and I'm old. <laughs> but great stuff. I, I'm really glad that you're getting into Heap. I think if if you like Metallica, I have to think that there's got to be at least some Heap that you would like because they have a lot of those same roots. And being that hmm. Heap was probably a band that they listened to, even if they don't talk about them that much. I mean, obviously Lars is is fighting for them to get in the Hall of Fame or has touched yeah. on that at least. There has to be some influence there as well. And how could there not be if they if they were listening to music from that era? I mean, you'd, sure. you'd have to be influenced at least to some extent by all those bands.
1: Absolutely. And I actually have a, a question for you that I think will tie with this because I'm. you were kind enough to, uh, you're going to send me the audio. This is also coming on the Metallica's feed. So a lot of Metallica fans are going to be listening to this either on my feed you or your feed. I only told you that to get you on the
2: show, though. So that's probably not going to
1: happen.
2: <sighs> you know what? Um <laughs> So if
1: you're listening, I need a guess for next week's show. Um, <laughs> Nicely done. But um, if uh, you know, as the resident Uriah Heap expert here, uh, what would be like a definitive album that you would recommend as somebody's first Uriah Heap album? They wanna they wanna take a, a deep dive. Do they start at the beginning? Is there a uh, you know, do they start at what you think is their finest album from start to finish? Is there a fan favorite album or what What, what would you recommend as a starting point? Because there's so much yeah. content out there.
2: Yeah, there is. That's such a great question. Um, I would tend to go with doing it in chronological order, but... Their first album, Very Heavy, Very Humble, is uh, a little more eclectic because they were converting from another band. Their previous band was Spice, and it was basically the same band without their keyboard player that they got uh, right as they turned to Uriah Heep, which was Ken Hensley, and he became one of the the primary writers. So the sound changed a lot, but there were songs that were left over from Spice that were put on the first album. So it's kind of an it, it, it's it is the first Uriah Heep album, but it's kind of like half Spice, half Uriah Heep. So I would mm-hmm. say, as much as I would say that's a great place to start, it might be throwing you off a little bit on what the band actually is because it uh, it, it is that sort of transitory period between sure. their old sound and the new sound. I would say their second album Salisbury would probably be the best place to start. Once you're a little more familiar with the band, maybe go back and, and listen to Look at Yourself or a uh, very every very humble. And uh, and kind of then see, OK, well, this is where they came from. Now I understand how they arrived at Salisbury. But I think Salisbury sure. would probably be
1: where they really became a cohesive Uriah Heap. All right. Well, there you go. So check it out, I guess I, I, I'm interested in uh, taking a deeper dive myself, like I said. Cool. Well, I can say that the song Salisbury itself is a uh,
2: is an incredible workout for any musician that plays on that song. Uh, it it's 16 minutes long and it is just from one thing into another, into another. It's one of the most amazing pieces of music I've ever heard. Um, definitely one of my favorite heap songs and, uh, they, they did it live. They used to do it live a little bit without the orchestra because it has a, a full orchestra or a brass, I should say a brass and woodwind section in the actual song, but it's a, it's a masterpiece for, for music. And it thinks that that was done in 1971. When there wasn't a lot of rock and orchestra mixed, except for Deep Purple's yeah, concerto, uh, sure. th- it was—it's a pretty big piece of music history.
1: And I mean, where do you think Metallica got the idea from? Lars would be a massive Deep Purple fan, and I'm sure, you know, work from like Uriah Heep definitely bled into that as well. Absolutely, and that the thing—the
2: thing I really liked about Metallica doing that is that they didn't just say okay we're just gonna have the strings double the guitar parts like there was actually some really intelligent yeah. arrangements that were done for that yeah. uh, i thought it was very tasteful and very interesting when i first heard they were doing that i thought they're just going to double the rhythm guitar
1: sure yeah well it, it's so easy to make it bad or at least not interesting and you know it, and there was like a little bit of a it, it became a little bit of a fad after s m was so successful where I, a lot of classic rock bands were all of a sudden doing like full concerts and albums with orchestras. And I, I remember in particular kiss release, like a live 27 or whatever it was, you know, cause every live album has to be a live something. Right. And it, it was with an orchestra. And I remember like listening to a classic rock station, whenever it came out, I was either in high school or college or whatever. And, um, I, I want to say I heard you know Detroit Rock City and uh, you know Rock and Roll All Night probably were the two songs that they played, and it was like it. It's just the orchestra basically following the guitar, which let's be honest, it, it great songs, but not overly interesting to begin with. And it's like it, it's like you, you know, there's just not much to. It's not much to sink your teeth into. It's really. I know it's surprising coming from Gist, but it really came across as just a gimmick.
2: <laughs> right? Yeah. Who would have seen that coming? The thing yeah. is, is that, that you know when Metallica did it, it made it cool again. And when they saw the the record company's sales on sure, on that yeah. album, of course, everybody's like, "Well, we got to do that." Um, yeah. I think the thing is that Gene Simmons is a great businessman, and he Absolutely. he knows how to make something work. And he's not afraid to do it. And I think he, he, of course, would probably come at with the approach of, well, we're going to do it different than everyone else does. And ours is going to be special in that because that's just the headspace that he he seems to think in. I just don't think it turned out that way. The little bit that I heard of it, I'm like, eh. yeah,
1: there,
2: there's nothing exciting
1: about this. Yeah. I mean, that's the story of Kista. They are OK musicians, good songwriters, great businessmen. Yes. Yeah. Well,
2: and, and the one song and you mentioned it that I just I can't listen to from them because it's just it's so over the top gimmicky is is uh, rock and roll all night. Because when they get to that part yeah. that says and party every day, I'm like that. That's got to be the worst line delivery I've ever heard. <laughs> and anybody who listens to this show knows that I am all about the positive stuff. Like, I don't like to bash stuff. I'm like, let's find the good in it. You know, I if I don't like something, I'll mention it, but I'm not going to dwell on it. Um, and it's usually a mix or something that I don't like, but I I just can't with that song. <laughs> it just it just yeah. is so cheesy to
1: me. <laughs> Do you ever see the movie Role Models? I have not. So it's it there's a several kiss references throughout, um, and one Paul Rudd's in the movie and his character says, um, "I like to rock and roll in part of every day," <laughs> and the and Sean William Scott's like. Part of every day, it's party every day. Paul Rudd's like, no, part of every day. I'm like, you know, nine to five. You know? <laughs> <laughs> But it, oh, it made me think of it because the delivery is like a little bit awkward when you hear yeah. the song. It, it, it's almost like they wrote that as eighth notes and said you
2: have to accent each one. Yeah. <laughs> it just it just it just feels so awkward and and forced to me. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, interestingly, as, as I'm not a huge fan of Kiss. I don't have anything against them, but I've just never really gotten into their Same. music. But yeah. we have a Kiss mini golf course here at the Rio Hotel in Vegas. And yeah. uh, it's pretty neat looking. I haven't gone through the course yet, but they have a huge gift shop and just so much Kiss merchandise and, and historical stuff. It's like a
1: it's like a museum slash mini golf course. Fun fact is I'm not a big Kiss fan at all. I, I, I appreciate them for what they are. And uh, but I have played mini golf there. <laughs> oh, have you really? Oh, OK, how's <laughs> yeah, the course? I, I so uh, I well, I went to. Las Vegas for a wedding, mm-hmm. and it was uh, and that was part of the wedding festivities. Was the groom was a big uh, Kiss fan, so we went to play Kiss mini golf. It was interesting. It's all, I mean, it was cool. It was, it's as gimmicky as you and cheesy as you would expect, mm-hmm. but it, it was fun. You know, they play Kiss over the loudspeaker nonstop, and yeah. it's all indoors and glow in the dark. um And you know, we were drinking, so. It's hard not to have fun when you're drinking beer and playing mini golf, you know, especially in the dark, especially when it's glow in the dark.
2: Yeah. We also have a a twilight zone miniature golf course that is done so well, but it is literally only certain things are glowing. And that is all you see.
1: And it plays the
2: twilight zone theme the whole time. (laughs) So you're just like, I don't even know if I want to be here. Yeah. But I'm going to finish this course, <laughs> you know, there's like a five foot talkie <laughs> Tina doll. And I'm going to I'm going to get that ball out of that hole as quick as I can, you know, before somebody pulls. Her string. It's, it's the most surreal place I've ever been in my life. I love
1: it. That's hilarious. Yeah. That I did not do, but I'll have to add that to the list.
2: Yeah, it's only been here for a few years. Uh, I can't remember like maybe three or four years since they opened it. But it's uh, over at um, Bally's Hotel. Yeah. Over at Valley. So yeah, really cool thing to to experience. And then you walk out of the, of the room and everything's just like bright and everything again. And you're like, I did, did I, was I actually just in there? Because I feel like I don't remember what happened for the last 45 minutes. It's just such a surreal (laughs) thing. And I wasn't drinking that day. So (laughs) (laughs) to change that for next time, but man, I I'm so (laughs) excited about your show. You've got, how many episodes have you done
1: now? Oh, I don't know. I, I'm on, you know, I think the next, I think this will technically be labeled episode 60, but I've done a couple like mini series that were not numbered and mini episodes. So I got to be close to, I'm guessing I'm close to a hundred at this point, if not over.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. And and you've, you've dug into a little bit of their history. Like you did an episode on Samhain, which I really liked. I just did a uh, review of uh, November coming fire. Uh, on my other show not too long ago. Oh, nice. Uh, you, uh, yeah. And they were the reason I got into them yeah, in yeah, the first yeah. place. You know, obviously the Misfits Connection and all that. Uh, yeah. But Metallica is yeah, yeah. certainly a band that has made a mark that I, I don't think, like you said, I don't think anyone's ever going to touch what they've done. And, you know, for four guys just following their passion, it's it's pretty amazing what they've created. And uh, I, I love that they were influenced by Uriah Heap. That just makes me happy.
1: Yeah, it's, you know... It, it, it does not surprise me at all. It does make me interested in why perhaps they're not mentioned as much when, you know, talking about perhaps they were just not as big of an influence. Maybe it's like a deep purple or an iron maiden or a black sure. Sabbath, but yeah. you know, I, I'm surprised we don't hear them more because there's so many similarities between the two. Mm-hmm.
2: And I have to wonder too, how much of that is. And I've talked about this on the show too, is how much of it is because we live in the States where, when I look at my stats on the podcast, I actually right. get a lot of European listeners. I get a lot of people from uh, Australia and different places. Oh, yeah. I actually do have a lot of people in the U.S., but it seems that the people in the U.S. that reach out to me are people that are just discovering the band for the first time. I've heard of the band. I've never really gotten into yeah. them, and your shows help me do that, versus people in Europe that that I get, oh, I've been listening to this band since I was eight, and you know, I, I get a lot more yeah, experienced yeah, yeah. listeners there and not so much in America. So if the podcast is helping people make that connection, then uh, I'm really happy to be able to help with that because it's a great band with a lot of great songs and um, to, to help people discover great music for me as a musician there, that's a pretty great joy for me.
1: Absolutely. I 100% agree. And I was actually thinking of that, you know, going to this recording, how I feel like in the United States, they're a little bit of a cult band, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but you look elsewhere, Germany, wherever, and, and they're still and to this day massive and playing big venues and uh, you know, really relevant and a much bigger part of that country's culture and history that they really get recognized for here because here, you know, they kind of had like a few minor hits and then mm-hmm. just you know you know, it's just sort of uh, more of a footnote band here, which I think is a little bit unfortunate.
2: Yeah. Yet when I go to the two times I've I've been able to see them live, it was a packed house. You know, the first time they were headlining, oh, sure, the yeah. second time they were opening for Priest. But uh, it was it's awesome. just amazing to see everybody's there and they're feeling it, and the energy's there in the crowd. It's yeah. like they're singing along they know the band and it's weird that we don't hear them spoken about as much, but yet at the shows they're packed, they're there. And with, with experienced, knowledgeable fans.
1: And I think part of it too, is just how media presents itself, right? You have those little sound clips, those little sound bites where it's like, you know, if, if you're on blabbermouth.net or whatever website headline where Lars Ulrich is talking about black Sabbath or Iron Maiden, or the purple is going to get a few more clicks than if the headline reads Uriah Heap, you know? So that name gets pushed down into the body of the article or the press release or whatever. And that's just the unfortunate reality of the media. But I, I do think that Metallica are in a position now, like I said, the start with things like the rock and roll hall of fame and whatnot, where they are going to start. Uh, utilizing some of their power and fame to kind of bring more of these bands to their uh, to the forefront because like you said you got into the Misfits and stuff because of Metallica and so did I Mm -hmm. and and they've been a champion for all these obscure, more obscure bands that have influenced them Diamond Head is a band that basically would not have any career in 2021 if Metallica never covered a handful of their songs they basically owe their entire career. To right. Them. Yeah. The first one was uh Am I Evil, right? Yeah. Uh and they've done, you know, Am I Evil, Helpless, The Prince, um, you know, uh It's Electric. Basically they're they've done like three quarters of their debut album has been covered by Metallica. And uh, you know, they're but they're still able to make albums and tour they're they're one of those bands that you know have had multiple lineup changes and they have a different singer and stuff now but they're still out there as Diamondhead, head and it's really because of uh metallica and i think metallica has done that for a lot of bands and will continue doing that and uh even for bands that do not need them to like an Iron Maiden. I think they have a shot at making to the rock and roll hall of fame this year. They've been nominated for the first time finally. Mm-hmm. And I think they have a chance because of people like Metallica in their corner who are in the hall of fame and who are, you know, championing them and rooting for them and pushing for them.
2: Yeah. And I, I love that. I love taking the influence and doing some good with it, you know? Um, but at the same point, I mean, you look at the sales, 40 million albums over 50 years. That's, yeah. I mean, I'm happy when I have four listeners on Spotify, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's just amazing to, to even fathom that scope. I don't, I'm, I don't know yeah. what Metallica sales are. I'm sure they're astronomical, but I, I just it's such a huge number. And to think that you've reached so many mm-hmm. people just doing what you love doing. And, you know, uh, Uriah Heep's played at Wacken, which is a huge festival oh, overseas. Yeah. I mean, Monster. it's just yeah. a sea of people you know yeah. uh, and and to even be invited to something like that is a pretty big deal i don't think they play a lot of festivals here in the states i don't think we really have a lot of festivals here in the states but well
1: i was going to say those european festivals are on my kind of like i don't have a bucklist but if i did attending some of those would be on it because there's from what i hear what i've seen the, there's nothing that compares to that and you know we have these you know, weekend festivals in the United States that are just, that are cool. They have sometimes have phenomenal lineups, but they're not the same as Europe between with the energy and the passion of those crowds and the, um, the type of bands they get and the amount of bands they get and the level of quality bands that they get is just unparalleled. And that's why so many of those festivals are, uh, you know, they happen once a year and it's just an annual thing. We don't have that in the United States, you know, everything is, uh, e- even, if it's a, you know, a festival that's been around quote unquote, it's been rebranded and, uh, commercialized. And- right. Yeah. It's going
2: to be pop music, grunge music, you know, it's, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. going to be straight rock and roll. I mean, we had monsters of rock, which was the first time I saw Metallica live. Um, when they played with, you know, the Scorpions and Van Halen and Kingdom Come and, right, uh, yeah. and all that. Dokken was the other band. Uh, but it just it, it was good, but it just didn't have the right mix of bands for me. Uh, but that's yeah. just me personally. I know a lot of people were perfectly happy with that lineup. But yeah, there aren't a lot of festivals that aren't geared to be commercialized. It's not just, hey, we love these bands. We think they would sound good together. Let's get a show. It's here's who will draw people. Here's the like, I feel like things in the United States are much more strategic and I feel like things in Europe are much more, let's make something really good and then people will go to it. Yeah. What a concept, huh? (laughs) Who would think that would ever work out? Well, Brandon, thanks so much for coming on the show. I look at the the clock and we're hitting uh, wow, we've been at this for a while. So it's going to be a couple of uh, different episodes that all air, but I'm going to air them all on Monday one after another. If it's, see, a lot of people listen to this show on their commute, on their jog. And if it's just one long thing, it's harder for them to pick up where they left off. So if I break it into smaller pieces, even if I release it all together, it kind of helps them go, okay, well, I'll listen to this one because it's 25 minutes. Then when I go on my lunch break or afterwards, I'll listen to that one. So it just makes it easier to deliver it in smaller bites. Thanks so much for coming on the show. great. Thank you so much for
1: having me. Oh, absolutely. You'll have to come back and uh, do another song. I would love to, and we'll have to. Uh, I'll have to have you on Metallica for a true, you know, Metallica episode.
2: Yes, I'm. I'm into it for sure. Awesome. <laughs> thank you, guys. I'll have uh, the link to Brandon's show in the show notes as uh, as I did. I just recently. I don't know why I hadn't added you to my Monday uh, thank list, but you're on there now. Today's show is Monday, but I'm not. I mean, the episode's long enough. I'll put that in tomorrow's episode. But uh, yeah, thanks, man. It was such a good time. Great to talk to you, and uh, we'll do this again.
1: Likewise. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Take care, buddy. Bye. Huge thank you to Scott for having me on his podcast. Uriah Heap, the Magician's podcast, Uriah Heap fan podcast, endorsed by the band themselves. Super cool. Um, Please do me a favor. Do Scott a favor. Check out the links in the episode description and give his podcast a subscription. Download on his feed as well. Follow him on social media at Heap Podcast on Twitter. And, of course, if you're new to Metallicast, I would love if you could also give me a subscription, a download, a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and a follow on social media at Metallica Spot on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, Miller up your ass. Yeah!